This morning we're reading from uh, Exodus 20, and we're reading from that again using all the other commandments we have dealt with so far. Uh, it's hard to imagine that you can actually go online and go back and, and watch some of these sermons that we have been able to tape. Um, I'm so grateful to the gift that Logan brings to our church in his preaching. And particularly, I think one of the hardest laws in the Ten Commandments that I had to preach on was the one he had last week. And for those of you who are wondering, no, I didn't set that up. I didn't force him to do that. He, he chose uh, the passages that he's preaching from as we work together. It is such a joy to work with him and such a refreshment to have the Word of God preached through another who is just as devoted to making certain that that Word is preached accurately and you are encouraged by it. As we go through the Ten Commandments so far, we've seen how um, God has given these laws that He might show us His holiness. The laws first are given that we might understand God's holiness, who God is, how we love Him, the first four commandments, and then how He expects us out of that love for Him that we would love one another, the last six commandments. And so as we go through the series, we've already dealt with that we are to have no other gods before Him, that we are to not make any graven images of God, that we are not to take God's name in vain, and that we're to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. These are the ways in which we love God. These are things that we can do to love Him. And so in light of that, when you and I think about these next commandments, the fifth being honor your father and mother, that we really are talking about that, that whole endeavor of making certain that we understand authority that God has given. And as Logan led us through that, we, we understand we have a duty as those who have authority to treat those under us with respect and to the glory of God, as well as those who have authority over us, that we do so likewise. And then also that we would treat equals, someone who is in equal status to us with the great respect and honor that God expects of us. Well, this morning we're reading from Exodus 20, and we're reading through the Ten Commandments again because my hope is, and our hope together, is that as we read the Ten Commandments, they will become ingrained in your heart. Because though we are not made righteous, though we are not saved through the keeping of the law, we are saved through our faith in what Christ did in the cross. The law teaches us how then we are to love God and to love one another. I invite you now, if you would, stand with me and let us hear the word of God together. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to Thousands, a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I think of these commandments, I, I think, okay, well, we're at a time in our history of our nation where it, people get very upset if you post these in public. We remove them from any form of public display in our country. The only place that really you can still find them publicly displayed is, interestingly enough, in the courtroom of the Supreme Court and in certain places ensconced on marble throughout the wash area of Washington, D.C. But in every other place in the United States, there has been such a battle to remove the Ten Commandments because, in the words of those who are against them, they say it promotes a religion, and the government cannot promote religion. And so as we've had these legal battles, it's very interesting to me, of all the Ten Commandments that most people would think would be the easiest one to post would be do not murder because I don't think anyone in our country is really happy about the idea of someone having to be murdered or someone being murdered. And so when you and I begin to think about this commandment, I immediately think, okay, no problem. I've got this one down, right? The others, the others mm, okay, maybe not so clear, but I have never murdered anyone. I've never killed anyone, really haven't, on, on Scout's honor, I promise. I, there is no bodies laying under my deck that I've buried, I can promise you that. I, there is no one who is missing who are, who are a part of my life, so rest assured, your pastor has passed at least one commandment. Yep, Karen knows it too well. She's just shaking her head over there because she's saying, wait a minute, there's more to this commandment than just taking life, isn't it? Some of you have fought in a war, and you have, you have been an instrument of a weapon for our country, and you have lived with the overwhelming grief of having to take someone's life. I've talked to someone who said that one of their children said, well, wait a minute, it says we are not to kill in some translations, therefore, is that wrong when you kill anything? There are some people who believe we shouldn't even kill animals, and so forget the steak dinner you were planning tonight, that doesn't count anymore. And when I was growing up in South Carolina, one of the things that was a part of our family traditions was hunting, and we often hunted meaning we, we killed animals so that we could eat them. And I will never forget the first time it happened that I actually killed something. There was something within me that made me realize that that life wasn't coming back. And so the first thing that went through my mind was, did I break the, the sixth commandment? Well, there's been such confusion over this because the 
translation you may use may say do not kill or the other you may not murder as we read in the NIV this morning. What are we to understand and how are we to live in, in light of this truth that God has given us? You shall not murder. Is it murder or kill or does it matter? Well, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, there are probably a little over eight different words that are used for killing or murdering. In other words, of taking of life whether it be an animal or a person or an enemy or a foreigner or even a brother or sister of your family. And so that word that is used in the 20th chapter of Exodus is ratzak. That sounds like Klingon, doesn't it? And, and interestingly enough, when you look at that word ratzak, it deals with specific type of taking of life. If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, you will actually read when Noah and his family came through the flood and the waters receded, God instituted what was basically capital punishment. From that point forward, God told Noah and his family that from that day forward, anyone who took the life of an innocent person, their life was required of them. Now that doesn't mean that capital punishment in our country is, is therefore uh, um, an easy thing for us to do. No, not by far. It is never easy to take life. But one of the things that we read in the Bible is that when it comes to the taking of life, there are numerous ways in which lives are required by God to be taken. But in this particular passage, God is telling us something quite specific and quite detailed about this law of the do not murder. Well, what is he saying? What exactly are we to understand? God is forbidding the unlawful killing of any human being. Let me repeat that one more time. God is forbidding the unlawful killing of any human being. There are many people who have been working to overturn Roe versus Wade for this very reason because they ask the question, when does human life begin? And when you go back and research this, it is not clear in people's minds throughout the ages as when life begins. Many believe that life begins when the first breath is taken. Others believe that life begins in the first moments of conception. These are ponderous things that we worry about. Because if this law is true, we cannot take unlawfully. We cannot take human life. And so in this law that God has laid out before us, the question then becomes, well then how do we deal with this passage in understanding and applying it? Well, please first note that murder mainly means the premeditated taking of an innocent life. You're driving down the road and someone's on a bicycle and you're driving in such a way that you're being a little reckless or you're speeding by them being careful that they, you do not encroach upon them in such a way that they then fall over and you run over them. Is that premeditated? No. But if you put poison in your spouse's soup at night, that's pretty much premeditated. So both the, some of you husbands are looking at me thinking, man, I better ch check out the soup tonight to make sure everything's kosher. 
I, I know that when you look at TV programs, one of my favorite, forensic files. I'm convinced, by the way, if you do want to take someone's life, you're going to get caught. Because the forensic files that I've been watching, they can find out about anything they need to prove someone's done something. There are very few unsolved mysteries of, of murders that I know of. But as I watch that program and other programs, one of the things that always becomes interesting to me is how the people who are murdered are usually murdered by the people who know them and supposedly love them. Have you noticed that? And so when God says you shall not take unlawfully innocent life, he's talking about the ability that humanity has of deliberately killing someone, even an enemy of yours, unlawfully. And this is what God is forbidding the Israelites, that they are not to be a part of that kind of life because it was evident throughout the entire world that that was the way you advanced that was the way you gained power, was you eliminated, you knocked off, you killed off whoever was in your way. And so as you and I begin to deal with this whole of this passage, one of the powerful things that you and I can begin to think about is, okay, if this is true, we're to not to take, unlawfully take innocent life. Is it just physical, breathing life, or is there something more God is teaching Ratzik can be used for any form of wrongful death. Well, what does that mean, any form of wrongful death? Any form. Well, let's dig into that a little more clearly. Let's see if we can unpack this so that we understand it in all of its nuance. Please understand, first of all, that when God has directed this, what does God require of us? He says first that we are to do our best to make every lawful effort to preserve our own life. And so if someone comes into your home at night while you're sleeping and they are trying to rob you and you feel endangered and you need to protect your family, God is not saying this is what you're not to do. He says, in fact, you are to. By this law, God is requiring us to protect our families from those who would harm us. And so when you think of self-defense, self-defense is the one criteria, even in American law, by which people understand that the taking of life is out of a desperate desire to preserve life, not to rob it from others. And so when you and I think about preserving our own life, we take measures to make sure that we eat that we sleep, that we drink, things that are right and pure and good for our bodies. And so we endeavor to make sure that the water we have from the town is clean, that the food we eat from the store is somehow certified. Now, I love the stamp that we pick up on the steak when we have it. It's inspected by the USDA. Why do we do that? Because in America, as we have founded as a nation, we understood that this law is important to the safety and the preservation of our country and therefore our government has instituted a way in which we inspect our food to make sure that it will not take the life of those who are innocent. You see how that works? When God says that he expects us to preserve life, not only does he expect us to preserve our own life, he expects us to preserve the life of others. Well, what does that mean? Well, it has various ways of application. I wish I could go through all of them. By that time, you would think I'm a trained lawyer, and many of you would have thrown your hands up and left. 
But here's one example I can give you. We have, a, we have a groomer that cuts our dog's hair when he gets very shaggy about twice a year. And when we call and we make an appointment to have the dog taken care of, that person who does this work is relying in their life on their business to operate effectively and efficiently. And so if... If something happens like that morning when she called and said, uh, I just wanted to call to make sure you're on your way because Gus's appointment is at 9 o'clock and it was a Friday morning and Cindy and I have a day off on Friday and we both looked at the clock and realized it was 9.10 a.m. I put the phone back to my ear and told Don, Don, I just don't think we're going to make it. And she goes, oh, I said, well, is that a problem? She said, oh, no, no, I, I just had scheduled him for this appointment. I, I don't think I'm going to make this up, but don't worry, we'll reschedule. And at that moment, I realized I was breaking this commandment. Why? I was murdering her by robbing her of her business. I had made a vow, a promise to be at an appointment where this person was relying on that income for her livelihood. And by not showing up, I was threatening her livelihood by doing that. He said, Robert, that's so minute and important. Well, it, it, it was to me. And so the next time we had scheduled an appointment, when I wrote the checkout and she, I asked her, how much did I owe her? I wrote it for twice as much. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. This was something I felt that I needed to do in light of what I understood from God's law. This is the way I please God. And so as I wrote the check and gave it to her, I rushed out as quick as I could because I knew what was coming. And it sure enough did. Right as I got to the truck, she rushed out and said, wait a minute, you paid me too much. And I said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I, I made an agreement to be here and I did not keep up my word of my bargain. And no, now I want you to have this money so you're here when I need you the next time. And she said, no, I'm not going to let you do this. And I looked at her and I said, Dawn, wait a minute. You don't understand. This is not about you. And she just, you could almost see the feather that knocked her back. And she looked at me and said, oh, okay. I believe in that moment that she realized that what I was doing was not for her sake. It was not for my sake. It was for the glory of God. Now what would our country be like if that kind of morality was practiced every day? You call a plumber who's going to come and work in your house and he says, I'll be there tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and it doesn't, doesn't show up. No phone call, no nothing. Or you're an electrician and you make a promise that you'll be at his house at a certain time. You, you see how this works, don't you? You see, when God talks about preserving life, what he's talking about is that we would honor God in how we treat others, in the way we give our word and the way we keep our word, but more importantly, that our word would never be used in such a way that we rob people of their livelihood. Now, you're smart people. I don't think I need to apply this to your life. I think you have the Spirit of God in you. I think that you are wise enough to figure this out for yourself. 
But if God expects us to preserve life, then I cannot idly sit back and watch people steal from businesses. I cannot support those who do that kind of thing. I cannot allow others to believe I would tolerate such behavior. That I would not report such things to the authorities. Why? Because they are violating a principle that God says I am given the right, the responsibility, and the calling to preserve life, not to rob it of others. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? And so when you think of this commandment, it doesn't deal just with the cessation of life that you take from someone's ability to breathe. It talks about preserving them in such a way that they're able to live their life in the glory of God. And so it involves every thought, every feeling, and every action. And so when I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off and I, I get angry and I pull up beside them and I give them the holy finger, what am I doing? I'm really kind of violating the law. That's the amen corner. <laughs> when I go into a store and I see someone putting something in their pocket and walking out, I'm actually becoming an accessory to their stealing because I'm allowing them to do that. How, one of the things that just surprised me this past year and the violence we've seen in our culture is how in so many cities people were going and smashing windows and taking things and just thinking it was a, a freebie where they could just walk in and steal tennis shoes or clothing or anything they wanted and then expect those businesses to be there a month from now? When all that happened, I thought about even the big box stores, how the people who worked at those stores would not have those jobs. And the truck drivers who tried, who drive the, the materials from the warehouses into those stores, they will not have jobs. And the people in the warehouses who stock that material and load it onto trucks, they will not have jobs. You see how the domino effect happens, don't you? And so in this kind of endeavor, God is showing us clearly that when he says we are not to murder, we are in the business of preserving life, not destroying it. And so as you and I begin to think about this and we apply it, we begin to say, well, what does God forbid? He forbids the taking of our own or anyone else's life except in pursuits of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. I, I, I must confess to you, I think there's something twisted in my heart because I have enjoyed uh, a series on Netflix called Mind, uh, Mind Hunters. And it's a, it's a book that has been written, put into a series on television about these FBI agents who began to profile serial killers who were not just killing people because of the fact they were losing something, they were enjoying murdering people. And they would murder tens of twenties of people in their lifetime. And you look at that and you think, what do you do with someone like that? 
Do you just lock them up forever? Some people think that's the only just thing to do. Or do you execute them? And so we're even seeing today this, this kind of debate in the Supreme Court where people are being sentenced to execution because of crimes that are, that are so horrendous. They are deserving of death. And when those individuals are appealing, they're appealing on the base of inhumane treatment of the way in which they are executed. You see this tension, don't you? You see it. You feel it. Because in our hearts, we want no one to lose their life. Life is too precious. But evil is so prevalent in the world, God, God makes it explicitly clear that if any one of us, anyone, takes the life of another, we have violated the greatest commandment by destroying a person who was made in the image of God. I thought back on my life and I debated on whether to share this because you think, well, gosh, where does this stuff come from? Where, in the, where do people get the idea of murdering? Uh, well, here's another part of that that's, that's part of this commandment. We're not to neglect or withhold the necessary means for the preservation of life. In other words, if we see someone in need and we can help them, then we're to help them that we might save their life. And so as I worked through this in my own heart, I remembered when I was a young boy, we lived on a farm and there was a barn, a barn in our backyard. And my dad, for some reason, had left an old ice cream churn. Do you remember those old ice cream churns? They weren't the plastic bucket kind of deal. No, these were the inch thick wooden buckets that were kind of heavy. Remember those? Well, I had one upstairs with me in the top of the barn. Dad obviously had left there because the motor or whatever the crank had been lost or broken. And so it just kind of sat there. And I remember sitting one Saturday morning just kind of lollygagging around the barn. And I saw my brother come out of the back door. And as he comes out the back door, I'm looking at that, ch uh, that churn. And I think, I wonder if I can drop that on his head. So... In thinking about this, I think, well, I don't want to kill him. So what I'll do is I'll lean down so my chest is on the floor and I'll lean out and hold the churn just about three feet above his head. So if he walks into the barn, I can be like the old bombardiers on TV. You know, those guys who were in planes that dropped bombs. I could just wait. And then when he comes at the right moment, <whistles> right? Let me tell you, it worked perfectly. He came into the barn. I dropped the churn, ma'am, right on his head. He fell down. And, of course, the first thing I said was, are you okay? And he looks up and goes, no, I'm not okay. You just dropped a churn on my head. And I thought, gosh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Now, we believed in spanking. And I still to this day can't figure out why my dad did not just tear my seat up with a switch. Because what I could have done was murdered my brother. I could have left him as a paraplegic. And it wasn't an accident. I don't know about you, but when I look at that in my own heart, 
It's not that I hated my brother. Or did I? What was going on? What would cause one person to act or think in such a way? Well, we know what that is. We see it every day. We're seeing an increase of violence in our culture. We're seeing it growing, not diminishing in our days. There's always been violence, but to the level we're seeing now, we have become so divided in our country that we are talking about assassinating presidents. We are talking about eliminating those who we don't agree with. We are using the internet in ways that God would look at and condemn us with this particular law that he's given because we are telling people they're worthless, they're useless, they're stupid, they are ignorant, they are inferior. And you say, well, well they are, right? Not according to God. In fact, when you look at the daily life, you look at entertainment, you look at our culture embracing death, where now we're coming to a place where we are actually talking about the possibility of the benefits of allowing people to die. Look what happened with the governor of New York with this COVID case. People are upset because he has done what? He sent people who had COVID into the weakest, most vulnerable population why did he do that? Some people are surmising that he did that as a way for the government not to have to pay for any of their health insurance anymore. And so as this talk of medicine and this talk of insurance and the preservation of our culture, we're seeing more and more that the elderly and the weak are becoming more and more targets of people who are saying they're really not uh, important to the future they're not important to our sustaining their lives. Where does it come from? It comes from hearts that have turned away from God. Who see life not as a gift from God, but as something we have for a while and then we just naturally die and lose. Well, in light of all this then, how are we to really go forward in understanding and applying this law to our own lives? How are we as Christians to live in the days that we've been given? Well, here's some things that I would ask that you would ponder, that you would ask God to work in your own heart as you look through this, because as you think about, as you think about all that we're doing, Christians have always believed that each person is made in the very image of God. And so because of that, we have a duty to oppose any kind of euthanasia. We have a duty to oppose suicide. We have a duty to oppose any culture that would embrace death as a solution to any life issue. And so in light of that, because of that, we look back to what Jesus said in Matthew. And in Matthew, he writes these words, which really are not a changing of the law that God's given. It's an amplification and explanation of what God intended in the beginning when he gave this commandment. And listen to Jesus' own words concerning it. He said, you have heard it said to the people long ago, meaning back in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You notice it? 
And so this, this law really begins to address the real problem in the human heart, and that is anger. Well, is anger a sin? No. But what we do with it is a sin. What do I mean? Well, read on. I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, well, what is that? Useless, empty-headed, ignorant, stupid. You could go into more probably flowery terms, but I won't use them from the pulpit. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus applying here? Have you re can you hear it? He goes so far as to say three things that are vitally important for us to understand from the passage that we're reading this morning. First, you and I must deal with our anger differently than we once did before we came to faith in Christ. That really the root of murder, the real root problem that murder is, is evidence from is our anger. Not that anger is sinful. Sometimes you should be angry but never as an excuse for us to then become God and judge and pronounce judgment on anyone. That our anger is a anger God has given us as an emotion that we might recognize injustice or someone who has wronged us or that maybe we have wronged others. That anger is, anger is a legitimate emotion of the human heart. But here's the difference when Jesus says we recognize that anger, it will lead to murderous motivations undealt with. Unresolved anger will lead us to a breaking of relationships with each other in the church. Unresolved anger will break the fellowship of the people of God. It will cause us to look at one another and say, you are not worth my time, energy, and much less the grace of God. And that is a heart that is filled with sin. And so when Jesus says, if you're at the altar and you're worshiping God and you know someone, and the, the way this is written is it could be that the person has something against you or you have something against them. Jesus says, in either case, if you're in the middle of church and someone has hurt you or you have hurt someone else, leave the worship of God and go and reconcile quickly. Why? Remember the prayer that we pray, the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we do what? There it is. 
And so any unresolved anger in our hearts Now, I want you to because I don't have time to go through all of this morning. Some of you have been wounded and injured people, and you have every to be angry. And you are unable to go to them and confront them any longer because of a death or the distance or whatever else might be there. Please understand, God still wants you to come to Christ and allow Christ to help you deal with this anger. Because it will sap your soul. It will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your life. But most importantly, Jesus says, when we know that there has been something that has caused a breach in our relationship with a believer or a non-believer, the best solution is to fulfill the commandment, do not murder, by going to that person one-on-one -on -one and saying, I need to talk to you. In fact, Jesus gave that very instruction. It's written in our book of order as Presbyterians that if someone has violated the law or defamed the name of Christ, there is to be someone to go to them and say, this is what you've done. Please turn and turn back to God. And if they, they resist, they say, I don't want to hear this. Then you take a witness and you go back again and say, we want to give you one more chance to, to repent. And if that person will not do it at that point, then you go back to the elders and the elders will go. And if they don't do it then, then the whole church says, we're now no longer acknowledging this person as a member of Christ's church. Why? Because they will not reconcile with their brothers. You see how dangerous this is? And so when Jesus talks about this whole business of dealing with this law, he wants you and I to understand that if we harbor any anger with anyone and we refuse to reconcile, we are actually refusing to submit to love to represent God in the world. And so reconciling was with others is God's method of saving your life. When I was growing up, my father and I had come to a place where we were at odds with each other. Serious odds. And I knew enough from going to seminary that I knew I had to do something. I could not go the rest of my life with this huge wedge of division that existed between my father and me. And let me tell you, I had anger and I was justified in my anger. But I will never forget the conviction of the Holy Spirit that came upon me that this could not give me life. And if I continue to harbor this... I needed to confront it. And so I flew home that particular Thanksgiving break. And as I was picked up at the airport by him, we drove home. And I finally unloaded not just one thing, but everything that was in my heart that had separated me from him. And I finally said, I want to ask your forgiveness for not making you proud of me. And a man who was six foot six almost wrecked the car as he dissolved into tears. And said, where in God's name did you get the idea? And he wanted to blame my mother. And I said, no, 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 no. 
And so as we unpack the rest of the story, it was the beginning of the healing of both of our souls. This is the way God works in restoring your families. This is the way that God works in freeing you from those motions that are so deeply bound in your heart. And until you ask God to help you not only clear the air with those that you have animosity with, and if you're unable to forgive them, you will find that you will deal with your problem by murdering others. Sin is never stagnant. It always bleeds over into other things. And so when God says, do not murder, He doesn't want you to just preserve your own life. He doesn't just want you to preserve the life of others. He wants you to avail yourself of the grace of Jesus Christ to deal with the root problem of the anger you feel and allow God to use that as a balm of healing and restoration. The law shows God's holiness. It shows our sinfulness. You know what the sinfulness is? I'm never going to forgive them. I'm never going to let them forget it. I'm going to take them out as soon as I get a hold. No, that's, that's the sin. But the law also reveals my need of the grace of God. You know, the saddest part of the message that I came to I could easily point out how people have wronged me. But it really took some thinking to think about how I might have wronged other people. And that's worthy of my thoughts. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came to reveal the truth of the purpose of the law. And that in that beautiful passage of Matthew, God, you offer us such opportunities for healing. I remember an elder in this church who is now with you in heaven one day coming to me and talking about a relationship with a son who, who he felt incredible pain over because he didn't understand why his son acted the way he did. And using that principle that you've given in this law, I simply said to him, you know, you really need to go and talk to your son. You really need to tell him what you're feeling. And when he came back a month later and we talked about it once again, he was freed because everything that he had thought was untrue, every impression he had was unfounded, and he was set free from the chains that once bound him. This is your gift to your people. 
This is the blessing that the law brings and the grace to fulfill it through Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, O oh God, bless us as your people. May we be pleasing to you in how we love Jesus Christ and each other. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.